WZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I am Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about economics, land use, and the structuring of governmental administrations. To the program, we have back on Chris Beiser. If you listened to the previous episode, you know a bit of what to expect. He is on to talk about an article he has written about administrative markets, but we talk about all sorts of issues, ranging from bureaucracies, structured competition in South Korea, automation, city planning, and the societal structure of debt. It uh, can be a bit galaxy-brained at times, but it's a very interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, let's just get into it. So, welcome, Chris. Hey, it's good to be back. Yeah, not, not in person, but hopefully this sounds sounds good enough. Uh, so, uh, you have a, a recent uh, article that you've just published on uh, your website, uh, gravitylobby.club. Uh, and uh, it seems like in some ways your, your publishing it has been inspired by the fact that the response to uh, COVID in the United States in particular has been, you know, something of a disaster on the bureaucratic front. So, I mean, yeah, uh, maybe just give some background and kind of, you know, maybe what the top level ideas uh, you're talking about here. Right. So, so um, I think the I think the main claim is something like, you know, there's this need for there's this need for administrative capacity. There are these problems that we've seen in the United States with our kind of bureaucratic systems. And one of the questions is, you know, there, there was a I think there was a time and there may still be a time place in there are many places in Europe where you can kind of operate a uh, a bureaucratic organization as a as a fiefdom or as a kind of social class that is kind of elevated um, and I think that that's been a you know the the French the French civil service right is remains incredibly competent remains incredibly you know highly positioned in the in the society uh all the all the government offices are in paris of course and so uh you know it's it sort of becomes the place to go it's i think there's a there's a functioning status economy underneath uh bureaucracies in many parts of the world uh i think in the united states what we've had happen is that uh, our elites have been kind of fractured geographically, uh, ideologically, and we've we've had somewhat of a bureaucratic breakdown. Right. Here's a question for you: How many people do you know who have joined, you know, the public service as a bureaucrat in some sense, in the United States, if at all? Because I would say of anyone I know, that's that's a zero for me. Um, I I would say I'm trying. I you know I think I know a couple. I would guess, you know, if I reach real far back, um, I would say probably three or four. Uh, but I would say that probably I know I know two of those four because they work on, you know, technology for, you know, the Pentagon or something similar. And the Pentagon has a mandate to recruit more people like me who are technologists, right? Yeah. And so there, you know, I know them, but... I don't think that's indicative. I think that's indicative. Uh, I, I don't think it's indicative of a uh, success or a widespread, you know, culture that integrates uh, the the civil service or or the bureaucracy. 
I think it's indicative of a, you know, a, a failure mode, right? I mean, I think it'd be interesting if more times you'd see people being recruited, like, oh yeah, please, you know, become like a, you know, a mid-level, you know, postal service bureaucrat. But I mean, it doesn't seem like that that is even on the radar for a lot of people or something. Right, and and I think one thing is that you know, bureaucrat is is a dirty word, right? I I think there's I I think we completely, you know, for decades we have overestimated the ability to which the United States government can run off of policy rather than administration, right? There's We always have a focus on lawmakers, on policymakers, on the laws, but, but actually it's worth bringing out the split here, right? Which is that have a large piece of legislation, there are going to be an enormous number of places where what it's doing is not actually, mostly it's not about setting up crimes and setting up, out punishments that will go through the judicial system. Uh, mostly it is about instructing different bureaucratic organizations about responsibilities they now have or tools they are allowed to use or, you know, or, or dispersing cash to them, right? Yeah, it's, it's fighting over resources as a much as far as like finding operations in the way that this flows. I, mean, I feel like it's it's interesting to look at like a different bureaucracy or something like McDonald's. You can kind of see kind of how nimble and just how much there is a lot of kind of vigorous work to kind of shape the operations uh, from the top down. And I don't know if you don't get the kind of weird cutthroat, you know, fast food world if you see the same thing in, in kind of the bureaucracies that uh, you would hope matter more or something. Right. I mean, the... The IRS is clearly a place with, you know, a huge number of uh, competent people and, and brilliant people, right? And I think you could say the same about the CDC and HHS and I would hope many other, uh, you know, classic, you know, the, the Fed, the Treasury, whatever, uh, classic Washington bureaucracies. Um, but I think it's, you know, McDonald's is a great example because uh, when you look at, you know, how are they able to uh you know do such a good job right i mean mcdonald's is like an optimal player right it's a supply chain yeah whiz in in the supply chain i mean you you have you know single digit inefficiencies in the supply chain maybe right and those are always chasing the new technology they're I, they're always chasing the whatever their competitors are are coming up with it is a very efficient market in a informational sense and it's it's very much like a business of like yeah if if they were to let down their guard and this is something people like look at like oh that's the private sector you know it's you have creative destruction you know the uh, burger chefs of yesteryear are forgotten because they couldn't you know swim with the big guys and i mean you could take that to be kind of a dismal thing saying oh yeah that because we're stuck with you know our bureaucracies as it is there is no competition for them it will continue to exist, which I think is how you, I mean, that's certainly uh, the implicit message in a lot of kind of, you know, Milton Friedman, you know, Ronald Reagan style. Yeah, you know, bureaucrats are the enemy. We need to trust the private sector. Uh, but you can kind of look at the, the way this was approached and kind of how privatization was entered kind of missed the crucial aspect of how you actually, you know, gain competition, which I think is what you're kind of getting at in this article. Right, right. So I should I should get to the actual the actual point of the post, which I've been kind of uh, papering over here, uh, I, I think the the arguments I've been making for the last you know five minutes or whatever 
are very clear uh, and very widely accepted. Um, although maybe sometimes um, sometimes resisted because they seem to point. I think there's a consensus that they point towards kind of a classic 80s style privatization, uh, you know, get rid of the CDC, replace it with the pandemic dot biz, the private CDC, the, you know, pandemic corp, whatever. Um, and this has been, you know, in many places it's been tried. It's been disastrous, right? Yeah. And it's, you get this too. I mean, you can see, I mean, you know, Chile being the great Chicago boys example, you know, they really went wild with just like, oh, let's privatize the water. Let's privatize, you know, all these utilities. Uh, and, you know, f- it's 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 very weird to have this kind of one size fits all like it's just the the magic you know the magic sauce right, of privatization. The tool, right yeah and and where privatization has worked to its credit uh it's a lot less visible than where it hasn't right so i think one one great example is you know m- municipal trash services right i think you know no one would say at this point or very few people would say that republicizing municipal trash services is absolutely imperative to you know uh to the functioning of the state um but the you know and so so the argument i make in this post is that the for many of these these situations that are kind of you can't privatize them you can't run them as a you know unaccountable bureaucracy that has no kind of competition factor uh that a good solution would be to break out into a model where you have multiple territorially competing bureaucracies that are, are nevertheless exist under a model of competition. Yes, and the, the follow-up is and how. Right, and so and so I think the the comp, the example I give the most is the the DMV. Right, as it stands, every single state you know there are fifty DMVs in the com- country. Some are called the DMV. Some are called the Department of uh, Motor Transport, etc. But the the principle is that each state sets up its own bureaucracy to handle things like issuing IDs, uh, conducting driver's tests, uh, conducting you know a small range of other services that in, that focus around questions of identification, motor transport. Yeah, and and so the the question is. If you are, yeah, let's say North Dakota, right? You've got, I don't know the exact population of North Dakota, but it's a couple hundred thousand, I'd say. You, you've got this problem where, you know, you need to create a bureaucracy for, for this. And you need to create a bureaucracy for the, you know, hundred other things that every state needs to create a bureaucracy for, right? You know, you, you need your own, your own unemployment system. You need your own, uh, you know, kind of healthcare marketplace. You need, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, right? It's a lot of choices. Like, yeah, how are you going to do the email system inside your own bureaucracies? A lot of like just boring things that are just going to become necessary. Right. right. And and the, the the claim is that there's no reason that North Dakota should be doing all of this, right? And and so, you know, ninety five percent of it has nothing to do with North Dakota. And so, North Dakota should go to South Dakota and say, you know, you've got a really good system for handling unemployment benefits. Uh, our, the way we've established these in law is basically the same, right? Maybe not exactly, but in principle, it is very similar. Why don't we just pay you, you know, five million bucks a year and use that same system? Sure. 
and this would just be like would this like in that sense would it be like a formal merger between different state bureaucracies or are you saying could you actually kind of curve it out ideally and take parts you would need and just you know pop it in i i think the i think the model that's that's going to be effective is that you have uh south dakota saying sure you know we will will grow our department by 10% to to handle the north dakota specific needs we have uh and we'll just we'll just offer this this same set of services and i think i think one thing that's worth pointing out here is that as time is going on more and more the content of these bureaucracies is software right yes which ideally would make it more mobile, you know, kind of less hard grained and, you know, oh, we, we actually have to, you know, operate this particular library, these file cabinets and all this stuff. These file very... cabinets, no, you, you, it's a database, it's another database, yeah. uh, et cetera. And, and so, you know, North Dakota is currently, you know, contracting out major outlays to the same, you know, I'm, I'm sure the same contractors that build every other state's you know, unemployment management system, right? And there's a point where you have to say, you know, the amount of, you know, there's no reason to duplicate this capital investment in every single state. I mean, to, to jump in, I feel like it's very interesting to kind of, you know, kind of talk about, you know, ideal systems versus I think the challenges of what we see in actual life. And I think just kind of getting down to, problems of path dependence of how like the shape and weird uh warts and also weird challenges of different organizations of all scales of all types like have to do with a lot of like weird choices that were made in their infancy uh, i mean to take like a just a weird oh, example yeah. like i feel like there's a like looking like college radio stations and wouldn't it make sense if instead of them rolling their own software stack they all shared some sort of scheduling system that they all used. But the problem is every station has for different reasons made all these different choices of what is a show? What is a DJ? How should things operate? What are different uh, choices of, you know, of, of policy within the station? And these need to be reflected in technology. And I think that's a question. If, if you have completely standardized systems, you can... Just, you know, change your service. You know, that's, you know, if you're running, uh, you know, some sort of web server in the cloud, it's very easy to just well, run it on a different cloud. But totally. if it's just like this weird bespoke thing uh, that only runs in some sort of like weird architecture effectively, in a, uh, uh, it's just, it's very hard to get things to cooperate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the uh, one thing that you see over time is that, uh, when you have when you have a system like this that's in its infancy and it's growing very fast it's very easy to schism or it's very easy to adopt your own uh practices right and i think you see this on you know a religious level too uh when you have a growing religion you get schisms right it's it's a it's a sign of their energy right it's a sign that there's energy there one thing that you see when you have uh Kind of shrinking religions, right? Is that suddenly, suddenly they get it in them to go, you know, you know, not always, but a lot of the time they'll get it in them to go. Well, maybe that schism wasn't wasn't so important anyway, right? Yeah, we can we can we can be friends. 
Yeah, we can be friends. You know, you've got the what is it? The Hicksite Quakers and the um the Orthodox. The Orthodox Quakers, right? Uh, yeah. You know, the brutal brutal rivalry for many years and then at some point they just go. I mean, do, do people remember what the what the schism was over even? It reflected a bit of the politics of the day. You had the if you're if you were at sympathetic to abolitionism, you would tend to kind of say like, "Oh, you need to actually show works." Uh, to a radical degree, and Hicksite, you know, uh, Quakerism would would seem to be the thing that draws them in. If you are, but it also has to do with just a lot of weird cultural uh, problems and just a lot of kind of just arbitrary tribal uh, divisions. But it was just so it was you know so uh, vitriolic at the time that people were like excommunicated from their meeting. Uh, it's like you are oh, not yeah. welcome here. Yeah, and that's it's right. that feels and, barbaric. And- in that sense, but it's it was it was natural. Just, just at the completely, time. you know, and and you see things you see all over all over where you do have Quaker meetings. You get this pattern where you have two of them, and they're they're right across the street from each other, and no one at e- either talks, right? Yeah. Uh, except that now they do talk, right? Because the 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 schism's gone, and the and the rival. Anyway, and and I think the I think the the point I'm making is that there's a similarity here in terms of the, as the technological focus and the administrative focus moves away from uh, a certain technology or a certain place, uh, the importance of running it efficiently and running it coherently begin to outweigh any specific ideological position inside it. Here's an example of that too. I think is you know kind of interesting. Looking at the history of, you know, trains, uh, trains were more or less you know good business. Regulations seemed to be you know somewhat functional. I mean, at least at the point like it wasn't you know crippling the uh, the train firms. They were still big and powerful. Uh, by you know the seventies when the major firms have gone bankrupt, have you know uh, merged and largely been subsumed into public entities like. Uh, Conrail and other things, uh, the you know there was kind of a sense like, well, we have all these regulations on the books for fifty years, uh, and when everything was healthy and when it was everything was just galloping away, it didn't really matter. But now we realize we're actually swimming in the stagnation of the fact that our, our regulations were never perfect to begin with, and there was a massive deregulation scheme under Carter, which people look back on, and you can actually just see the the details. It did actually help efficiency markedly uh i I imagine you probably threw out a lot of good regulations with that uh but it was a lot of uh kind of crude price controls in some sense that i think people were unable to deal with anymore and there's just kind of this uh life cycle of you being you're young you can take that damage but when you're like older uh that's really it can be a huge burden Right, and I, I think the I think the trains example is very instructive too, because in the, you know, the last ten years probably, uh, people have started to ask. Um, Alon Levy in particular has been asking, you know, why is it that trains are so much ex- more expensive and so much less productive in the United States than in uh, other countries, and why are why are costs for building rail systems so much higher in the U.S. Um, and I think his main finding is federal railway administration's uh, structure for regulating crashes and, and crash resistance has relied heavily on 
a a metric that deals with the weight of the car, right? And sort of the amount of steel that goes into it. Uh, yeah. And for a long time, you know, this was... And, and so what this does is it causes this increased level of friction on the wheels because the train cars are so much heavier. Yeah, you want to make it safer so it becomes like a, a bank fault on wheels. As right, way. and because it's a bank fault in wheels, it's, you know, it's heavier and so you need a bigger engine and so you got have to make it even heavier than that. And then you need to make it safer because uh, it's now that much, you know, you know bigger. Right, and, and this, this because the weight is so much greater, uh, you put a great amount of pressure on the wheels vertically, which wears them down much faster. Anyway, but the, the point is that, uh, you know, we have on the books, we have this great detailed railway safety standard. Um, and the thing that's hap- started to happen when you're building new railways, uh, like the... Uh, you see this on the new the new Caltrain cars, right? The new Caltrain cars are not certified to that Federal Railway Administration standard. Uh, they're in fact certified to the European standard, and then through a um, through another process, they're certified as kind of just as safe as uh, an equivalent American car would be. But they, they, did they have a fight for that exemption in some sense? That's, that's, there was, inter- I think there was a bit of a fight. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know how politically controversial it was, but I mean, in essence, they got it out, right? And I, I think that's a, a telling example of that. You, you know, you know, yes, we still have this this official standard on the books, but you can also just say this is just as safe, and uh, we can prove it. I think this kind of goes to, in a lot of sense, you talk about, like, oh, how do things operate? What is the efficiency? And that's sort of a snapshot of any time and place. If I were to kind of look at how good is something and how is it operating, I think it's much more important to look at its trajectory as far as does it have kind of a virtuous cycle of ways it's growing in a way to make it better and better, or is it you know stagnating and dying? And I think if you look at European trains... Uh, Asian trains, these are serving people. They are admired, they're loved. People kind of put love back into them and attention and resources, uh, you know, status and, and, and other stuff that makes it better and better. Whereas, you know, if it is already bad, you can throw more resources at it. Uh, you know, you can just allocate more budget. But if it's not on the right trajectory of, like, certainly mattering in people's lives. People don't take the trains here, and it's hard to bootstrap yourself into a sense where, like, oh, this bad infrastructure becomes good uh, without actually first making it necessary for the functioning of people's lives. That's kind of my theory of why it just costs so much, why it's a boondoggle, is because, like, it's not necessary for us. Right. I, I mean, I think two things are worth pointing out here, and one is that these Caltrain cars are, in fact, manufactured by... Uh, CRRC, which is the China Railroad Corporation, I think, um, which you know produces an enormous number of rail cars uh, with technology that, in many instances, is that there was a um, the Chinese high-speed rail uh, industry kept getting in the in the mid two thousands. It was bids for bids for the contract re- in required technology transfer. And I think it was Alstrom, the European train manufacturer, eventually to get the contract, uh, handed over a substantial amount of IP. Wow. Yeah, which is, in retrospect, a a poor move as they've been they've been losing out on contracts 
everywhere else ever since, right? That's it. So, so they lost their personal, you know, trade secrets, as it were. But in the end, it seemed like it actually helped the entire train industry. Oh, in it's some... been it's been huge for the train industry because you've got, um, you know, the mass massive amount of R and D that is on the books in in Europe, right, uh, is getting is getting produced by a company that, you know, doesn't have the doesn't have the capital overhead to, you know, have to have to invent such a thing. I mean, do you know um, the the classic example of the tragedy of the anti-commons? No, no. Uh, so, I, the tragedy of the commons people talk about, well, if you share everything, people are going to overuse resources. The tragedy of the anti-commons is if you don't have anything to share, if everyone kind of goes to their corner with their own IP, with their own stuff that they could be sharing, uh, you can actually have kind of uh, an absence of, of successes. Uh, and the biggest example is in the two decades after the Wright brothers, the airplane industry was actually kind of stagnant uh certainly uh, uh, and a lot of it's had to do with there's a lot of ip locked up in a lot of firms that were unwilling to kind of work with each other they all try to each invent the their own kind of airplane really in their own corner uh and i think it was uh, the u.s started up this big bureau to somehow force them all to kind of sell their ip be compensated but then it's kind of open between them all. And when they all were able to kind of use this IP, they were all able to actually kind of uh, move airplanes into a kind of uh, higher level of, of uh, you know, of, of technological, uh, you know, achievement. Right. And you see, you see very similar uh, industrial policy as South Korea was industrializing. You know, you would get a lot of, a lot of loans to a, a number of companies in an industry that the government wanted to support. You know, so in in car manufacturing, you had uh, you had a couple dozen of them, and what would happen is that the ones that were you know the the domestic market was kind of closed off, in that there were there were these kind of bogus uh, niche safety regulations, where um, essentially only the only the domestic manufacturers could compete, uh, and, but as the as other man, as manufacturers scaled up their production and they increased their exports. Uh, the government would pressure the smaller and less successful ones into selling to the more successful ones. And so you start out with, you know, two dozen car companies that are each producing essentially, you know, very, very low value add manufacturing kit cars, et cetera, et cetera. And you're moving from there to you're not doing well enough. Uh, you're getting sold to Hyundai, Right. So it's a weird fusion of centralized planning, but more or less in just kind of coordinating private firms instead of you know having a, a right. gas plan kind of you know core. Right, and I I think we we kind of in the U.S. there's this real dependence on this free market versus central planning uh, kind of agenda, but I, I think that many of the most interesting industrial organizations of the world what you see is a kind of decentralized planning, right? So you're not, you're not dictating everything from above. You're not, uh, you're not leaving it all up to the, the hands of the market, but you have a, you have some form of plan and you allow agents to operate within it. It's interesting to compare that to like, you know, the tech sector today, uh, something which ostensibly helps innovation is software patents. But I think in practice, everyone, uh, you know, the, the firms really only use software patents defensively because if they don't get it, someone else will. And they 
tend not to be, uh, you know, incredibly uh, lit litigious between each other as opposed to just trying to, like, there's almost kind of a weird cartel aspect. Like, okay, let's just kind of, you know, you know, not be, uh, not have a, you know, a turf war over software patents. Let's just kind of plug away. Uh, you know, but you do see small, you know, non-firms even be patent trolls and they'll start, you know, creating nuisance lawsuits. Uh, that doesn't really help anybody. And if this was like the South Korea example, if, you know, these small firms achieving nothing were just being uh, a pest, they would be liquidated. They would say, oh, please give your patent. You're not helping anyone. But instead, because we've essentially reified the patent itself as being the driver of innovation, we allow a lot of completely rent-seeking and awful behavior because we trust the process. Totally, totally. And I think this is, I think this is the kind of American uh, in, insistence on the kind of naive Kosian theory of property. Uh, coming to bite us, right? Which is uh, the theory is that if you have a if you have a piece of property and you know what the value of it it is, you uh, if there's someone else who is better able to use it for economically productive ends, you'll just sell it to them, right? You you would never you would never leave a good deal on the table. Every good deal is taken, right? And and the reality of uh, software patents is that they're kind of basically free to claim, right? You know, you, you pay some fees, but it's it's fairly insubstantial. And that make, monetizing them is is kind of contrary to the impulses of the firm, right? Monetizing them directly through a through the through a legal legal remedy is in fact detrimental to your ability to, you know, build a real product, right? Yeah. To take any action in the real economy, but as far as this goes, this kind of goes back to you know we talk about you know managing all these private all these private organizations, uh, you know whether it's done in the kind of South Korean model, but in the same sense, you know what would it look like if you have kind of a decentralized coordination of a lot of different bureaucracies, you know at one point how do you how do you actually measure and try to iterate through. Uh, you know, to make sure you have globally optimal outcomes. And two, how do you make sure that it isn't just, uh, you know, it, it doesn't just decay into kind of being one big monopoly in the end? Right. So one, to, to jump back to this, this question of planning, I think one thing that people rarely observe or rarely kind of think through in Silicon Valley is that because ownership is divided between uh you know, there's. I, I would say there's sort of an elite vanguard of venture capitalists, right? And because of the way that we divide, you know, promising companies are owned by you know four or five or six or seven different venture capitalists. Their strategies are kind of developed, and they'll try and fund you know entities in a sector. I think there is a analog here to the South Korean example, right? In that there is a you know. Andreessen Horowitz does have a plan, right? Sequoia does have a plan, uh, and they will raise additional equity as that plan proceeds, according to you know how it's panning out. Yeah, so it, it makes sense at their scale, uh, which is I think partly people would say like the entire old model of American firms, which is like oh you need to get big, you need to get big by going public, 
you know, we kind of, as all these firms staying private for a very long time, almost, you know, as long as they can. Uh, and then it, it kind of is a, is a good analog. It's almost as though it's like some almost government level mega private corp uh, coordinating everything, uh, which is a very kind of different model than how kind of the traditional uh, <laughs> traditional way you, you, you'd expect things to, to grow and evolve. And but it seems to work, right? It seems to work. Yeah, I mean, some people would say, you know, I mean, I think that's the kind of biggest question as far as like the economy overall, you know, the standard model of the economy is like, okay, you know, you have things to invest and people have a need for money and things. So if you lend people stuff, they'll take your investment dollars and they'll construct uh, goods and services and firms and machines and that will help people and kind of, you know, money will multiply, you know, things will just grow. Um, but, you know, in, in reality, like... Uh, interest rates are now dropping to near nothing. People can't really figure out good things to do with money, and really all the money is going. You know, I feel like uh, like Aramco is like a big example. I keep on thinking of because they uh, liquidated a, like or you know a lot of their uh, oil interests, and their big scheme is like okay, let's put it all into Silicon Valley uh, VC firms because if we put our money here, this is the best investment potential. And I think there's certainly a lot of talent. And, uh, you know, uh, an innovation in Silicon Valley. But in the end, what are they doing in order to take the investment dollars and I think make people's lives function better? I think you could say people's lives have been changed by technology, but, ha you know, is it really, is it, does it make sense that it is in fact the best and only real place to invest these days? Right. I mean, I think it's... Um... To, to speak to the SoftBank, for example, for a moment, I, I do understand they had a very good, uh, very good pizza startup in Palo Alto that was, uh, that was giving out essentially, essentially uh, subsidized pizza. Yeah. Did you, uh, uh, did, did you, uh, did you try that? I think they're actually Mountain View. Uh, talking about uh, Zoom Pizza? Mountain View? Yeah. Zoom Pizza. Yeah. Here yeah. Things. Um, <laughs> you, you start out, like, it's funny, like their entire first, like, year, you know, like incredibly cheap pizza, and then also it's like, oh, get a pizza, you get a hoodie. Oh, we'll give out, you know, uh, you know, coffee mugs, stickers. Just it's like this. The VC part of the thing is saying that we will just kind of grow and make it bigger. And the person who was making Zoom, it started like with some small person who said, like, okay, you know, this is just going to be, uh, you know, kind of a ro roboticized pizza. Will it outcompete pizzerias? Like, oh, who knows about that? That's not interesting, you know, because if you outcompete pizzerias by a little bit, there's not a whole lot of money in that. But when they sold it to SoftBank, they said, this will transform the future of farms. This will become not just, not just, uh, it's going to become, I think it was like a like cyber farm or something or, or, or a giga farm, I think is the word they used. Uh, and like, that's what you need because like, oh yeah, I'm going to make uh, the next Friendster. It's going to be a, a college website thing that people are going to share their interests. Like that's not, you know, a huge money maker in itself, but there's a chance this is going to become a, a huge part of everyone's life and you'll get, you know, incredible amounts of advertising dollars through it because it'll become uh, just, uh, you know, a huge sector of where people spend their energy and interest and, uh, and time every day. And that's, that's kind of what, uh, I mean, uh, the, the VC the VC investment dollars are chasing this incredibly long tail of what if it becomes bigger than anyone could have ever expected in a weird way. 
Right. So I, th I think there's two interesting things about Zoom Pizza. Uh, one is that I think that they reflected this moment, which is now ended, of just trying to allocate capital however you possibly can because there's there's you know so much of it. And right now there is not so much capital. No one knows what to do with it right now. There's not enough capital for anyone to you know get enough to keep their operations going until they can continue selling anything. Um, but what the other thing I think it reflected is a a delusion, and I think this is um, both a delusion of Masayoshi-san and of um, and of you know the tech sector in general, and 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 I think this is a delusion that's kind of a weird point of agreement between leftists and technologists, which is that you know automation automation is gonna is gonna cause all sorts of wild stuff, right? You know, any any minute now, we're going to automate away all the jobs. Um, and this is kind of the Andrew Yang pitch is any minute now, we're automating away all the jobs. We're already doing it. They're already going away. And once that happens, we'll need something for the humans to do. Uh, and I think this reflects a very weird theory of automation uh, because it, it puts first the, the kind of idea that automation is inevitable and that it is purely labor displacing right you know it'll, it'll just eat the eat the field alive if you just throw if you just invest a little automation bucks throw it at a business you get automation pizza and then suddenly it's become a big money maker that's the theory at least right right and and the the uh and the theory i mean the theory is sort of that capital is cheaper than labor right if you can if you can automate making a pizza uh that's going to be cheaper than paying someone to make pizza and it turns out humans are very good at making pizzas. Um, and this, you know, in the in Zoom Pizza is a clear example in that, you know, how how many pizzas and how fast does it need to, do your pizzas need to get made uh, for a for a thirty thousand dollar, you know, robot arm to be cheaper than you know, some kid making ten bucks an hour. Yeah, and I think over time, that's like the big thing. Oh, yeah, clothespins, you know, people haven't been able to out-compete machines in a long time. But when you get to, like, weird, weird uh, kind of just bespoke and not really that high-scale stuff, when are you ever going to see machines outdo people? Because we're not there yet. Right, and, and I think the other thing about clothespins is that if you look at the clothespin manufacturing sector, uh, I would guess that there are more people in it than you know, when they were incredibly scarce and hard to make. I, I don't have the, the data. I mean, I'd be curious to know or if it's just one guy just presses the button every day and then a bunch of clothespins pop out. Oh, but, but who makes the clothespin machine, you know? Uh, who yeah. maintains the clothespin machine? You know, there there's a whole, you know, machining sector to, uh, you know, refine refine the tools necessary to replace the components on the thing. And, and um, these are very, like these are very uh, industry specific machines, you know, because you're not going to have some multi-purpose just you know replicator device. Oh, please, you know, uh, you know, you know, make all these clothespins, which is you know, very different than how you'd see software run. It just runs on the same platform. But uh, well, I don't yeah, know the, if software really runs like that. You know, I mean, people people have this idea that software kind of you know exists in pure nothingness and it runs for perpetuity. And the reality is that, you know, you see all these these surges in usage at the start of the, the quarantine and all of these all of these companies are, are saying things like, 
Well, it looks like, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're human beings who get an alarm in the middle of the night and have to get up and, you know, create a new database or, or, you know, expand the number of servers available or, you know, deal with an overflowed uh, queue. I mean, it's, it's... Well, everything is constantly breaking. Yeah, constantly, constantly. Anyway, so, so the, the point about automation, though, is that, um, you know, there is, no, there is no shortage of people to make pizza, right? And it turns out that it's just more expensive to get a, uh, you know, machine to do it. And if we, I think, I think if we do, I mean, you see, you see, there are, there is such a thing as a frozen pizza machine, right? Frozen pizzas come down a conveyor belt, mostly. I mean, I think that this idea that automation is going to take all the jobs and that, I mean, I mean, to the, there is, you see these statistics that say, you know, the number, they, they count up the number of jobs lost to automation in the U.S. I think that's, you know, that's a, a classic chart. And when you look at them, what I think you're seeing is that almost exclusively it's that, you, you know, the performing labor in the U.S. is no longer cost competitive with performing it overseas. And, and automation is one, you know, kind of route around that. And outsourcing is the other route around, right? Which at the right angle, you know, same difference. Oh, you just... Uh, stuff happens. It goes behind the curtain. Stuff happens, whether it's, you know, some guy... Uh, you know, in, in Asia, or if it is, you know, a machine uh, around the corner, you know, all it means is it's doing your job uh, cheaper than you. So, right, right. And I, I think the, you know, you, you can, it's, it's a lot easier to see, in some sense, the, you know, the, the quote, unquote, jobs lost to automation. I think the question that isn't asked maybe enough in the US is, if you didn't automate these, you know, if you didn't automate half of this job, right, would the other half still be here? In some sense, it's a, you can, you can see automation as a, uh, in being a labor saving tool, it is a efficiency creating tool and therefore one that allows production that would otherwise be sub-economic. Yeah, I mean, in theory, if you do it right, it allows everyone to command all these machines to do their bidding, which should make everyone a lot better, especially as machines get cheaper and cheaper. Uh, here, here's a question. Just, I, I don't know if you've ever, like, I, I would just look fascinating. I, I don't know where I'd learn more. What do you mean, like, oh, yeah, let's let's turn the, the General Motors factories from making cars and the robots to start making ventilators. Like how, did, like, how easy is that even to happen? I don't know how general purpose our machines are. Because uh, I imagine if it's like, oh, we need to turn the code base from making this to doing this, like that would probably, you might as well start from scratch. I, I, I just don't know exactly what are our robots even capable of as far as uh, adapting. Yeah, this is this is not my not my area of expertise, but I yeah, my I, understanding I'm... is you have you have robots that can make things out of you know make things into shapes out of metal. Uh, you have, uh, I think a lot of it is wiring harnesses. This is actually. Uh, one of the one of the things that Tesla is really interesting for is that they've been they've been kind of removing the you know the wiring harness involves a lot of uh, low wage high precision labor where you you know you have this kind of set of wires that operate as the skeleton of the vehicle and go to every single component um, and they've been putting in a lot of work to replace that with a you can think of it as like a single power bus, like what you'd get on a motherboard. 
mm. with all of the various components, you know, drawing from that. But I mean, yeah, it's it's things like making wires and it's things like bundling wires together and plugging them into circuit boards. I don't know. I, I, I don't have a good instinct for what the other things in the ventilator are, right? And, and here's a second thought, kind of unrelated, but this is just something that's been crossing my mind for a bit now, and I think it's relevant as far as kind of the shape of automation. Uh, this has to do with kind of, uh, you know, the transition from feudal age to, a, like, you know, kind of a capital-owning, you know, age uh, in the, you know, mid-last uh, millennium, as it were. And a theory is like, you know, why was it only useful to, you know, be a feudal lord, own land, to control agriculture, you know, like, why wasn't it important to, like, you know, own capital, to own machines and stuff? And a big reason is, like, until, like, the 1400s, no one has ever made something that was actually worth, it was fixed capital that, like, kept value. Everything was, you know, within a week or two, it would rot and die. No one made anything right. that was would go, be good and last. So if all your machines are worthless in a week, why are you going to own machines? And the same thing with like with code bases, you know, it's like if like or just like all sorts of larger scale kind of tech today, it all rots. You know, no one oh, yeah. if if I can get a code base from 1970, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe if it's like if it's actually still in use or something, but like it's just all worthless. You have to constantly be like keeping this ball of mud uh, rolling. And what if that changed? What if, like the fact we started making machines that were like good for decades, what if people made code bases that were good for decades? Uh, then they could have real value in controlling them uh, insofar as exclusivity, which is not clear, has more value. And I worry like automation, like, like if there actually was general purpose uh, tech that could just do things, we've just not reached that point in which this it's it's just not good enough yeah, i i mean i think one thing that's fascinating is uh john deere tractors if you buy a tractor today you know there's the new market and there's the used market and in some cases you will pay a premium for a john deere tractor from the 1970s uh because it's user serviceable right yeah, it's not a weird black box where you're, you know, if it, if it breaks down, you are absolutely just hosed. Right, and and some some people who own these more recent tractors, uh, you know, you can go to forums and there is a kind of black market Ukrainian unlocked, uh, you know, bootloader for them. Right, you know, a different, you know, the Ukrainian tractor operating system. Um, and that'll allow you to right, and it sounds it sounds completely ridiculous, um, but that's that's sort of the the tool that allows you to have the functionality that you got for free, uh, all the way from you know the invention of the tractor until like the mid two thousands or something. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, what is the most worthless thing in the world? It's fifteen year old technology because you know you know you're damn lucky if you can kind of just get it to work. You know, it won't, you know, you know, you can't, you know, uh, get it to, you know, even like work in your system anymore. The cables are different. You know, everything is just, you know, in that sense, moving too quickly. But there's also just there's not a robust platform uh, in which you can reliably use it. And uh, res, you know, we have made essentially interchangeable parts that have been stable for centuries and that we gained real advantages from that. Right. And, and the question for me is, 
uh, are we looking at a, a kind of situation of flux where, you know, starting about 10 years from now, maybe uh, these things will be sufficiently mature that, you know, you can sort of rely on the standards and you can sort of, you know, interoperate them up something close to the long term, or is it, you know, or, or are we living in the perpetual, you know, uh, the perpetual present and it's, you know, it's, it, all hope is lost. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that the bleeding edge of, of the capital sector or any kind of like, you know, flashy industries, it's stuff that hasn't been done before and we're still figuring it out. Uh, when it's stable, I mean, in the mid 19th century, this is making machines, but you know, machines are a lot more stable now. They're kind of more boring now. Uh, in that sense, you know, a mechanic can kind of work in a lot of things because there's not, they don't have to be kind of reading the, like the latest bleeding edge, you know, the hacker news of, of machines as, as they would like, you know, in the 19th century. Uh, and like if people leave, you know, software industry because it's kind of mature and start working like, you know, bio or something. Yeah. Maybe you'll be able like, oh yeah, this old code base, you know, I can still work on this in a way that is not really the case these days. Uh, because we just become much more of a commodity and less of just the freak sector of the econ of the uh, you know economy. Totally. And I, I think this kind of goes back to uh, you know the idea of like the administrative administrative markets. There's a question of how do you make sure you can pop in one sector into yours and work within different kinds of bureaucracies, you know, essentially hierarchies and so on. And a big question is you need to have rugged interfaces which are mature and which allows coordination and cooperation to exist on a scale which is actually has a ton of friction now and... oh yeah yeah and and so i think i mean if you're if you're south dakota and you're saying we're we're adopting the or if you're north dakota and you're adopting the south dakota unemployment system i mean i think what that looks like in reality is you know you pass a bill and you know, the you know the government signs the governor signs a contract. The legislature passes a like harmonization bill, and I would guess eighty percent of the legislators don't understand what the concrete effects on the unemployment system is. Right? Maybe you oh, get surely. a summary, but you know you harmonize it and you say the value that we're getting from uh, the thing working well and us not having to put all of our attention towards maintaining it is greater than whatever the specifics of the system are. And if you can, I think if you can come to that, you know, come to that position, uh, you can have a lot of economically productive consolidation. I mean, this, you're speaking of like kind of what are the interfaces now? The interfaces are law. It is what you kind of pass in different, you know, legislatures, which are inconsistent, but you can you know, harmonize in that sense. And, you know, money is always a very convenient uh, form of interfacing between different uh, organizations and so on. But what if you could do different things? Like, you know, what, what, if, what if the actual database itself was a form of interface? Uh, there's you know, all sorts of concerns with privacy and, and so on, but it would be really nice if you can kind of have like a very standard platform and be able to pop things on and off um, to allow, you know, a, a change. You can fire one bureaucracy all at once and, and, and try a new one for size. Right. I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in, in governance over the last 10 years is, uh, you know, Estonia's e-citizenship has gotten a lot of hype, right? 
This is essentially they will I'm not allow really you. I'm not familiar with it. Tell me more about right. Okay. okay, so Estonia is this country in you know northern Europe that's right on the right near Russia, and was, is kind of post-Soviet. And the full story is sort of in the in the 90s, right? They're they're no longer a Soviet satellite state. They're liberalizing, and they go, well, let's let's build a modern you know European welfare state. And they do a report and they run all the numbers and the numbers come back and they say, okay, we can build a modern European welfare state and it'll only involve a million people to run the entire thing. And the, the, you know, the prime minister looks up and says, we can't do that. There are only a million people in in Estonia. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And so Estonia, I think, hit this scaling problem of how do we, operate the bureaucracy efficiently sooner than everyone else, right? Sure. Um, and so what they do is they say, how do we automate as much of this as possible in a, you know, in a procedural way, in a, you know, using using technology? Because, you know, it's the 90s. You you have the internet for kind of the first time. Uh, and they sort of put put two and two together. Um, and, and they're, you know, I think they got very lucky, actually, in that they have this this uh, there's an Estonian, you know, Estonia has a good tech sector. There is a, you know, former CEO who had uh, he was on forced gardening leave, so he had sold his company, uh, and the buyer, you know, didn't didn't require his services, but was requiring that he not work for a competitor uh, for a period of you know broadly construed for a period of you know four years or something. But he's eligible for this thing. Right, but he can. No one, no one prohibits him from running a you know government ministry. Hmm. And so essentially, what happens is he builds up this in in a largely unaccountable way. Right? There's a there's an incredible YouTube video where, and it's got I, I'd say it's got like 500 views. Uh, and he's there and he's drunk, uh, giving a presentation uh, to a kind of local tech meetup, and he's got a whiteboard and he he draws out on it, you know. Here's where I am in the government, right? There are 500 people below me working on various various pieces of software. And he goes, above me is the, you know, the the assistant cabinet cabinet secretary of of X or Y or Z who has herself 11 ministries and above above her there are, you know, she reports to a member of a committee, you know, in the legislature who has, you know, another five committees. And, you know, he multiplies out the numbers and he says, so that the person who is ultimately in charge of, of me, you know, supervising me in the legislature uh, can spend approximately 3% of her time on each of the, you know, of the ministries that she is in charge of ostensibly. But there's still a lot of power that th- th- this guy is actually responsible right. for. And so this guy, this guy is, you know, in a sense, he's just, he's just, you know, you don't say this out loud usually because... But because it's uh, people generally don't like to admit this, but he's essentially saying, I am I am operating this bureaucracy and 97 percent of the time I can just do whatever I want. Right. As long as I don't cause too much of a ruckus. That's 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 the question. In general, do you get accountable bureaucrats or unaccountable bureaucrats? And if you have, you know, and honestly, I mean, I think in practice, either you have accountable bureaucrats which have no leeway to do things or unaccountable bureaucrats that you just have to kind of have faith in a higher power whether it's a structure that they actually are at once have freedom and two will actually achieve good things 
Right. I mean, the the ideal situation is really that you just happen to get a exceptionally good bureaucrat who just does the does the things that everyone wants to happen because they're good, right? Yeah. Uh, and we spend a lot of time dealing with the cases where that doesn't happen. Uh, but if if things are going smoothly, you know, where's the problem, right? Anyway, anyway, so he's he describes though this system that they build, which is called XROAD, and XROAD is a interoperable data platform. So the Estonian ID card has a little, um, it's the same chip you get on a SIM card, right? And okay. the same chip you get on a credit card. Uh, these are very weird systems, in fact. I think most people kind of think they're like, you know, you see there's like nine pins a, and you go, oh, this is like, a, this is like memory, right? This is a, a piece of memory, this is flash, whatever. It's actually the the chips actually contain a very small computer that runs an operating system called Java Card, which is a manually memory managed subset of Java that does not have strings. Is this is this all like an open platform, or is this controlled by this some? Is, this is um, I mean, I think it's Oracle. Oracle oh great! It. But it, I mean, it was Sun. It was Sun first, right? Mostly, what this gets used for is you know you insert your card into a machine and it uh. It does a bunch of cryptography to, you know, make a payment and so forth, identifying you with without providing a reusable credential. Okay, but so you have you have these essentially identity chips, which provide a you know a stable identifier for a person. You have a system of data interchange, and so this is not exactly a block a blockchain, but it is a kind of append only data structure where. The, the principle is not that you want to allow um, control over user data, right? You you don't you don't want people to be able to approve or deny any request from any government agency for their data. It's that everything gets logged, so you can you can see you know if the police access your file, you can see that the police accessed your file, right? Okay, so it's 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 a like. I guess it's some form of authentication and just you know logging in that sense. Right. So so the what what goes into this file though is uh, pretty much every government record, and the principle here is that no government record, uh, no piece of information by law may be stored by the government in more than one location. Right. So if you if you change your name, there's one record that uh, you will change. And every other government or organization will pull from that and alter your name accordingly. Is the is the goal here? Is it the goal here just to try to create robust design, or is this a, was this, was privacy concerns part of this? And I'm trying there to say are privacy concerns. There are um, there are kind of organizational paperwork concerns, right? You don't you don't really want to force everyone to, you know. I mean, there's a lot of data entry that's getting automated. Uh, but I think a lot of a lot of governance is ha about having you know a single stable uh, set of data about you know a person and what they're allowed to do and what is you know what is the status of this or that right. Well, almost almost the definition of governance is kind of a central resource management and a key resource is uh, the topology of the truth. So you want to have one database that contains information instead of two contrasting databases, and you have, you have problems. Right, right. So in, in fact, it's it's many databases, but they are uh, networked into a single queryable form. 
no conflicts. No conflict. And so as a result, you can you can do things like, you know, you can get your prescription. It goes through the same database as everything else. And, you know, you can show up at the pharmacy and you can you can show the, you know, they, they have you on file, you you know, you have your chip, etc. So, so I guess a quick question, should Estonian e-citizenship eat the world alive? Is this is this something that actually is a platform that is good and should be exported? What were your thoughts on it? Right, I mean they they have um, they have what's called the Nordic Institute for Interoperability, uh, which is a great name. One, yeah, uh, and they they do they do have the mission of kind of productizing this and internationalizing this as a platform for governance, right? And the the and I, I think that you know it's open source. Many governments would do well to just adopt it, right? I mean that's that's absolutely the case, uh, and the 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 core piece of software. I think I think people underappreciate how much if you're willing to make uh, compromises on the systems that you will use elsewhere, people underestimate how much you can do with a very simple piece of software, right? And yes. so they they rewrote the they rewrote the core of this piece of software a couple of years ago from C to Java. Big rewrite. Every line of code has changed. Uh, it cost them I think half a million euro. Okay, that's which not is much. in the scale of a you know government software project. That's like you know that's that's like what what you pay for you know to print out all the documents you're writing. So so the the premise here, so the 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 Estonians have sort of uh, I think figured out at least in some respect this question of how do we build a information system that will act as a moderating platform for. Uh, you know, government affairs. Yes. Once you have such a thing, and were you able to produce such a thing in in other countries, uh, and you know, the U.S. may be a bit trickier because you know everyone hears you know, oh, it's a central database about it's the I it's, it'd be like the the five G conspiracy theorists times you know a hundred. Yeah, the 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 chip in your ID card is the from the book Revelation. It's it's the mark of the, the beast. <laughs> Uh, but that's, I mean, I, it, it reminds, it's a lot like if you talk about like a different like sector, you know, you know, 150 years ago or more, uh, you know, kind of uh, a different platform would be, you know, rail for railroads. Everyone's doing their own crazy thing. And the standardization battles over standard gauge uh, was non-trivial. And there was a lot of wasted energy fighting over it. And of course, this is a very simple, it's just a measurement and a bunch of rails. But once you actually created standardization, you had amazing amounts of interoperability. And I think if you talk about this, you know, this form of uh, you know, technologically enabled government bureaucracy, like there, there, there is nothing to that scale. And you can imagine just all sorts of gains of interoperability if, if, it, if it could occur. Right, right, absolutely. And I think it, on some level, it needs to occur because you know, people don't seem to be capable of continuing to man as the as the number of things that a government needs to do increases you know there's a there's a certain number of battle stations that no one wants to man anymore right and yeah. and the question is how do you is you know the 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 options are sort of either you let you let it just rot you let it you know go to go to waste and and you let things start falling apart or you come out up with a coherent systematized way to you know, downscale the effort involved to achieve the same result. 
I mean, in a lot of it's it's, it's I, I think I was describing earlier kind of like the path dependence of different organizations and bureaucracies and how it depends a lot about how it was formed, how youthful it is, where it is going. If you have like a strong, you know, Nordic style bureaucracy, it can still be going strong because people still need it, but. Uh, you know, it's it's very hard to change things on the fly, and if it's if it's decaying, it's very hard to change it. If you could create a strong platform which allows you to swap things in and out, uh, the overall age doesn't really matter as much because you at least have a solid foundation to build upon, which is what no one really has now. There is no foundation to speak of. Right, right. It's it's. I'm I'm sure every bureaucracy in America has a. A stack of you know five handbooks that they've used over the last fifty years, none of which has ever been quite right. Were at some point good enough because you had a live, active culture, and there comes a point when that stops being the case, right? Yes. There comes a point when you you know maybe you can't even muster the energy to build a new edition of the handbook, right? A point at which you cannot territorialize the routine actions of the organization. But yet everything just, just is essentially immortal. It's very hard for these things ever to go away. I mean, like I say to one uh, handbook of a sense, which is always kind of, uh, you know, a, a personal antagonist, just like look at any city's comprehensive code for zoning and so on, probably started, uh, you know, 60 to 80 years ago, uh, maybe like 100. And yet it's it's codified. It's, 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 it's stagnant. It stays. And... Uh, yeah, it's 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 very hard to kind of imagine how this could become more nimble. Right, right, and but it needs to. It needs to, and and whether that involves you know uh, rewriting these codes as a set of changes from a kind of central document, or whether it involves um, you know a a moving them moving them kind of up the stack into higher levels of government, it does seem that you need something, right? And and you could even imagine uh, in the in the administration market sense though what that would look like is you're the government of Cambridge Massachusetts, uh, the governments of Somerville Massachusetts, and you know whoever is one town past that Medford, uh, you know y- you all have these these building codes that at some point were key expressions of the identity of the city right and its desires yes uh, probably while there was substantially more building going on. Yeah, it was done when it was young and fresh and there's a lot of energy, uh, you know, when, when someone cared and wasn't just kind of uh, uh, just kind of worshipping this document because this is the way we've already always done things here. Right, and the question is, if you went and you replaced all of them with Somerville zoning document, would anyone notice? Uh, outside the map, yeah. I, that's, a, that's the thing that's kind of crazy. You talk about just, uh, like... Japan is famous for having national-based zoning. You say, oh, it's, it's interesting that they kind of do this on national scale. But if anything else, they just define what is a standard apartment building. This is done in one place. And it just makes so much like it's like with I can go in 20 miles in different directions and you'd have just completely disparate definitions of what different structures are. And that makes it very hard to do anything. It's very odd. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is... There's, there's, uh, I mean, it's, it's bizarre even, I mean, you look at some of these places that I, that you would have a, on some level, it's bizarre that you even have a, you know, set of laws on the books that are specific to, you know, given towns all across the U S right. 
it was a path least resistance at one point, I guess. Right, and it, it made sense at one point, surely, because you need to adapt, you need to, you want control over your destiny. But I mean, you go to uh, you go to anywhere in in. I mean, does does Palo Alto really need a, a different set of laws on the books than Mountain View? It's 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 pretty, it's, it's it's frustrating. It's wild, but apparent apparently they think so. At least they'll they'll continue to comply by it. But I I think to get, to get back to kind of just the overall idea of bureau, bureaucratic reform and kind of the idea of putting these in place. One thing to mind is like it's kind of crazy. I mean, like, I like in the last uh, uh, reading through a couple of like different like Tolstoy books in the mid nineteenth century, like you know taking place from War and Peace in the early eighteen uh, hundreds to uh, uh, Anna Karenina in the eighteen seventies. But there's a ton of people who are. Uh, relatively young, capable people, and like their energy is bureaucratic reform is just kind of this huge deal at the time. It was it was the age where that was kind of a major idealist uh, time to change things, and I think it's it's interesting, inspiring that we're almost at a really interesting point to make that happen again. Uh, but my question to you is, if like you were appointed, uh, you know, administration, you know, market czar. Uh, what would you imagine to be actually a fairly plausible path forward to experiment and try to get a foothold in in this? I I think the um, only way you can think of it, you can't. I don't think it makes sense to look at this on a totally, uh, you know, the national administration markets are. You know, I think that's not quite coherent in that you're trying to build a powerful distributed system. You know, it doesn't make sense to to do that from a centralized position. But I think I think what the, you know, the natural path forward for a for administration markets in general is going to be something like, you know, I, I think a, I think a good a good avenue is whenever you have a bureaucratic system in crisis, right? You're the gov- and, and and in particular state government, right? You have a you have a governor who. Uh, has inherited a terrible system that does not work. You know, maybe it's the, maybe it's the Nevada Police Reform Commission. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the Iowa Department of Motor Vehicles, right? Yeah. And they've got this, they've got this question, right? Of, I've got to fix this thing, right? This is, you know, this thing has caused me major problems. This has caused the state major problems, and it's, you know, my job is to fix it. I, I think the thing you need to do is you need to be the little the little devil on the guy's shoulder saying, what if instead of embarking on a four-year mission to march through the institutions and replace you know the the corrupt uh, and lazy bureaucrats who keep making you know causing terrible problems, what if you just what if you just ask the guys next door to take it over? Yeah, right. Just save yourself four years of bureaucratic fighting and see what Montana has, right? Ask if they want to take the contract. I, I, I know like a little bit in uh, – I've like heard a bit about you know the operations of people working in consulting for different public utilities. And it sounds like in practice this is something that kind of goes on. You have one city with a completely sclerotic and dysfunctional utility system and another city – uh, and that is also failing in a lot of ways. Uh, the consultants come in and somehow arrange a merger between the two of them, uh, and somehow uh, 
somehow save the day in some sense. And like, that's kind of a weird case opposed like, what if there's just kind of some capable person on the sidelines who, instead of being brought in and this moment of disaster, just actually kind of makes it easy to kind of step in and, and just take over business. Um, right. Right. And, and if I was, if I was running the, you know, the Montana department of motor vehicles, what that would look like is platformizing all the services that exist and figuring out how to make them things that can scale, how to how to build them into a how to build the process into a, I mean, effectively a, into a software as a service model, right? Where the uh, individual, you know, locations are, you know, scalable, franchised, etc. Yeah, and at the, at the end of the day, what's going to matter? It's it is going to continue to be accountable to some sort of. A higher level commission at the you know state legislature or something, and they're going to have to see what resources are going into it, how much everything costs, and then uh, at the end of the day, like what is the what are the measurements they're getting to say like oh is this working is this not do we need to step in, and I think if you're actually platformizing it in a way that works, you should also be able to kind of create a consistent set of measurements which are. Uh, generally agreed upon to be useful to say that oh this is the performance of our bureaucracy is measured in a real way not one that is kind of cheated uh which i think is the that's the essential that's the essential problem of of bureaucracies in a lot of ways like it's a lot of times their health is hard to measure right right i think i think one insight that uh is very hard for people to grasp is that i think it could be substantially simpler and substantially easier to run a kind of, you know, 8, 10, 15 state uh, multi-bureaucracy, right, in charge of a certain domain than it would be to run the same thing at a, you know, a subscale, you know, small town kind of level. I mean, every city runs their own uh, city planning department, and it's kind of wild insofar as they're having trouble, like, around here in Silicon Valley, staffing them because it's so expensive to live here, and now we're facing austerity in this crisis. Uh, it's, like, why not have, like, one massive city planning org uh, do a lot of cities? No, the the Metropolitan City Planning Organization, you know, yeah. call it that. Give it, a, give it a headquarters in San Francisco. You know, cut or or maybe maybe it's maybe you stick it in in Oakland to assure people it's not you know a San Francisco plot. Yeah, I, I, I got I got the willies when you said that. Yeah, don't put it in San Francisco. Put but yeah. give it an office in Oakland and an office in uh, in Mountain View, right? You know, it is it is surely uh, easier to plan for six cities at once and easier to you know I mean it's it's not six times harder, right? Yeah, there's economies of scale at the at the very least. Here's here's one like concern I have on top of it. I just I just wonder if like you think of like essentially like Gresham's law for currency. You know that bad currency drives out good. Uh, is there the same concern that bad bureaucracies would drive out good in the sense of if you create kind of what is the minimal viable bureaucracy that will actually keep you uh, legal if you're like trying to just appoint <laughs> these things uh, by some sort of just the the laziest way possible. And then it turns out that, oh, yeah, these, these people just do it for less. Uh, they'll do an adequate job. And then eventually you have, like, every single bureaucracy is run out of one kind of cut-rate firm that more or less abuses the fact that things are measured poorly. I could imagine that happening, but I, I think the question is, like, do you actually get 
do you get cycles where people respond to how well and badly they're working and people shop around or is this purely going to be a behind the scenes thing that no one except one rubber stamp uh, committee will ever even like look at and just make decisions on right i mean i think the i think the hope is that you know surely you get the the cut rate version right i'm sure that happens um hopefully you get the you know the high standard version as well right hopefully someone is is saying you know this is the white glove department of motor vehicles you know absolute best quality of service um and i think the the theory is that because you have kind of productized it you will be able to run the analysis right you'll be able to compare state by state and i i think if you determine right Maybe it's the maybe it's the DMV, maybe it's the um, maybe it's the Department of of Education. If it turns out that you know the white glove version doesn't seem to have measurably different outcomes than the cut rate version, I think that's something useful to know. And I'm not saying that's that'd be. I don't think that's the normal case, but I would guess that it's the case probably ten to twenty percent of the time. And then the question is. Is does it not have better outcomes as measured, or does it actually? Because there are two questions. There's kind of the essential performance in some sort of uh, you know platonic state, and there's the you know how does it look uh, in the data, and these should map onto each other. But I think you have to kind of consider the possibility they won't. Right, right. But I think in the possibility that they don't match, and you don't have any you know any viable method and you can't can't develop any viable method for measuring the thing uh, i think you should be very suspicious about the idea that it's been working great beforehand anyway yeah i mean i would say this, if i was if i was doing measurements for city planning i would say uh what it, like uh you know what are levels of congestion uh what are prices of of uh housing units i think looking at I think very low level and very objective measurements that actually affect people's quality of interacting with them is a good place to start. Uh, and I think that a lot of times you look at a system like a, a city planning bureaucracy right now and nobody is effectively even looking at performance. It's just kind of a, uh, a procedural uh, commitment to following the process because the process is, is, is just, yeah. and that's, <laughs> that's, it's, it's a bit <laughs> odd. Uh, so yeah, I think we've been talking for quite a bit, but as far as like, we're wrapping up, uh, now, like any other, you know, big thoughts about like, what do you think people should, uh, you know, especially chew on? And I think in particular, uh, as, as you know, the kind of, uh, crisis, the coronavirus we're in right now, uh, you know, kind of what in particular might be, uh, an interesting, uh, you know, th- you know, thread to pull at to say like how, what do you think might be a first you know, domino to fall? I think the you know we're we're obviously looking at a you know a housing crisis a uh, you know mortgage crisis really um, a a rent payment crisis it's a crisis for someone the and and I think the the question is I, I think the big question has been you know people lose their jobs uh, storefronts shut down you can't pay rent who does the crisis hit right. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing is, you know, there's there's this kind of manufactured controversy about uh, you know, reopening, right? From a uh, you know, land standpoint, from a housing standpoint, is worth considering is that if you make it illegal to 
uh, operate a business, the argument that the business should not pay rent seems a lot stronger than if it is legal and it's just that you know all the demand has has dried up because there's a pandemic. Oh yeah, a lot of times it, it's kind of just like what are the assumptions that go into the way that you handle, uh, in this case, you know, uh, a recession. Uh, but everything is kind of uh, formulated as far as you know what are income streams, you know what are you know who is out of work, uh, and if they are, it's probably a normal kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, right now there's kind of just a more fundamental question of just uh, you know how is everyone getting by, you know how is everyone living, are we uh, you know are we handling all these different. Uh, things well and are we handling the public health crisis so there's like this weird sense of we need to reopen so people can get incomes uh, without really kind of getting the core issue of like you know why do people need incomes right now what is the work they're doing uh, and is this should this be happening right but I I think it's I think that because people need incomes is like a thing you know I, I think that people do need incomes but I think that the idea that you know, if you reopened every restaurant today, right, or you reopened every store today, no one is still no one is going out to buy things, right? Uh, but what you do is you put the mortgage owner in a position where uh, they are now on on the hook for the non-performance of their business, right? So if you are a company that either issues mortgages or you're a real estate investment trust, uh, you have a big incentive to produce a kind of you know, almost a fake reopening, right? A, a, you know, in order to say, oh, there's no, you know, there's no excuse here because you were able to operate your business. It's, it starts to look just like a normal recession and not so much as a public health emergency, which might have different uh, stakes as far as who who is impacted. Right. It's, it's the question of who can, who can say, you know, can you say, I'm just not going to pay rent, right? Yeah. And if you're, if you're not able, if you're not allowed to do any, to open the, you know, to open the door to your business, I think it's you got you've got a lot stronger a case than if you're, you know, if your customers have just dried up. You know, if the, if there was a hurricane, yeah, if there was a hurricane, right, and the the building you're renting to do your business on, the building you have a lease on, gets completely blown away, right? There's just a patch of dirt. Are you going to keep paying rent? Uh, I mean, it's if you think it's in the, your long-term interest, but I think uh, based upon that level of damage, you you probably think no. Right. It, the the there's a there's a sense in which what you're paying for when you pay rent is you're paying for the service of having a you know a place where you can do business, and when that when you're when that's broken, and you can't you can't operate the business. You, in some sense, your your obligation to pay that rent is in question. I mean, the, the ref blew the whistle, but it's kind of weird if like you're continuing to use a logic of the game is still happening because the game's not happening anymore. Right, the game's not happening, and yeah. so and so I think that when you when you see these protests that say let's reopen, it's it's not it's not about reopening. It is about getting the ref to blow the whistle again, right? Yes, which is partly saying that we need to go back to the old rules because I'm afraid that if we don't start playing again, we're not going to pick up the game with the same rules, uh, and that could be that could be damaging to to, to many. Uh, I mean, I think if you talk about like kind of just the core question of like, I think it is attractive to a lot of people. It's like, oh, I need income, and the subtext is like, I need income, 
you know, through the only way we know how, which is working, where really what is income, it means that we need to give more people an ability to have a claim to, you know, pay different agents for goods and things and services, whether that's, oh, you need to get your, you know, tokens to get your food. Uh, that's a very crucial thing that people need incomes for. But also, oh, you need to pay your debts because, you know, uh, you have some student loan debt on your register. Oh, you have some, uh, some... And you need to pay them because we've securitized them. And if you don't pay them, then the banks collapse, right? I mean, yes, that's, exactly. that's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, if you think about it, crucially, you need to get food in your stomach. That's real. You need to pay right. the people who hold your securitized uh, student loan debt. That's not real. This is all some extremely fictitious thing we've... we've, we've uh, we've created and uh do we continue with that role right now i mean uh certainly at the same time scale it's a bit odd yeah I, my my line on this is is very simple which is if you if you play leverage games you win leverage prizes right uh, can you expound on that a bit <laughs> if you have leveraged up you know to to get a mortgage to get a um you know to acquire debt that has been securitized yeah you know you're you're magnifying your exposure to it right and so if it outperforms by one percent uh and you're at 5x leverage you'll get you'll make a five percent gain right sure and the 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 problem though and the thing that many people are very reluctant to admit until it happens at which point they're they're shocked and horrified is that if you have leveraged up and there's downside uh then you are down five times as much right Yes. Everyone loves to be leveraged on upside. No one likes to be leveraged on downside. And, and I think if you talk about like, oh, it's yeah, people are less sympathetic if oh, you you have money in stock that drops. Like, oh, that's the rules. But I mean, I think you talk about other types of leverage. Whether it's like, oh, I have invested in you know real estate, or even like I've invested in my own earning potential through taking on uh, you know loans. There's all sorts of things that turn you from like a non you know, a non, uh, you know, stakeholder to becoming a stakeholder through taking on leverage, which gives you more power, more status. Uh, but should it also expose you to more risk? Uh, and I think people don't want that downside. Right. And, and the, you know, the standard, the standard game here is that you say, well, if, if they shouldn't have had that, you know, leverage, uh, if they can't handle the downside, you should not have given them the loan in the first place, right? Which is usually true. But when you when you start to get to the housing market, in many cases, those loans are underwritten by the government, uh, encouraged by the government, and their very existence distorts the market such that you need that much leverage to you know acquire anything. I mean, creating the class, I mean, uh, the cynical take is creating the class of stakeholders and non-stakeholders is the point. The point is right. to actually segregate uh, the uh, the body politic into the haves and the have-nots because it actually, if you can get the leverage to power up, uh, then you're you know more of a person than everyone else. Yeah. Anyway, so the the the, the moral of the story here is that uh you know what it was the Wall Street Journal ran a headline uh, I think last week about there is a very highly leveraged Airbnb uh, you know landlord who is suddenly out $22,000 a month in rental income, which is uh, surely not a great position to be in. You know, I mean, you hate to see it, right? Well, I was going to say, I, I, I think the, the most worrying thing you see when you know you're in a, 
in a boom cycle, which is going to be uh, look really ugly in a bit, is when people are suddenly making a lot of money in things that, like, it's just like this weird one-up loop, and they don't really even know how this even makes sense or is sustainable. <laughs> and, you know, if, if uh, the tide goes out, uh, a lot of times it figures out, oh, yeah, they actually, the reason they're making all this, you know, free money is because they actually have this huge amount of unexposed risk that right exactly which could come up and in this case it does and so i think this is you know the the what the what the implosion of the land debt bubble at least this time you know it's never a permanent explosion but this explosion looks like is uh a lot of people with a lot of a lot of debt that you know it's it's not going to be pretty right it's not going to be pretty there is a to an extent you can you can see the the calls for reopening as a kind of hail mary to hopefully maybe you know pass the hot potato just before it explodes yeah i mean I, and from like a you know a thousand mile view of this you know what like what was the game and what were they trying to accomplish it was a game in which people obtain credit uh, in order to allocate resources, you know, in a certain pattern. Uh, and this is the classic game of real estate. It has been going on for a very long time. Uh, it has booms and busts. This is looking like an extremely potent bust in a certain sense. Uh, and I, I think the, yeah, the, the, the core question is, is the game as we have been playing it productive and functional as an allocation uh, allocation method i mean i think uh one core thing i believe is i think it's always been a bit goofy uh as opposed to kind of more direct ways of allocating uh real estate as opposed to making it a, a speculative vehicle as it were <laughs> but i think that's i'm not sure that's really a, a thing i'm just kind of you know i i got i got one more one more question for you before we before we call it right yeah, yeah, yeah. because this is and this is the um you know i you're you're the one of the world's premier experts on uh, on Georgia's theory, and the question is: You have these pieces of land, right? That are uh, let's say let's say they're retail, and due to an exogenous you know impact of uh, you know you're suddenly no longer able to use it to sell products because say there's a major pandemic. Yeah. Uh, what is the what is the appropriate way to adjust the taxation on that land? What that does a, land value tax look like under a pandemic? I think that's a very good question. I think the the I think the real question is who is charging it and why? Uh, if it is charged procedurally based on various reasons of saying, um, uh, you know, this is just the way we assess things here. I think you can get some really bad outcomes in which you foreclose on people for no good reason. Uh, I mean, I think if you take a kind of larger scale view, uh, look at a metro area, the goal of a optimal uh, you know, tax assessor <laughs> office is to maximize long-term revenues by increasing the value of land as the long-term. So I think you don't want to, uh, you don't want to burn people in the short term in order to optimize. The short-termism could really kill you. So I think you really want to give the proper discount uh, that you think you're going to optimize land value in the long run, which is easier said than done. Uh, but, but I think uh, I think that at least gives you a kind of target of what you're going for. So um, I would say, 
you know, give give a discount maybe based on maybe based on need isn't probably the 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 wackiest <laughs> kind of podcast. Is, is, <laughs> is, is, is that is that sensible or am I kind of just being way too handy? Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. But but and but philosophically, are we thinking of it as you know a kind of counter cyclical uh, system of land taxation, or are we thinking of it as a or the the value of the land, the time value of this land has decreased, and therefore the uh, the taxation of it should too. Well, I think if you if I put on my other you know pair of spectacles, which is looking at things through a functional finance lens, uh, you know, kind of a you know MMT Abel Lerner uh, Sylvia Cassell lens in some ways, which is kind of I'm looking at more and more. What should you do at all times? And it's you distribute incomes to people just because it's that's that's easy. You know, it's actually one of the ways you just need to keep the lifeblood of the economy going because no matter what, it's always useful to make sure people have tokens in their pocket. Uh, and you got to administer your currency correctly. And what is the point of a land value tax in this lens? And the point is it's one to make sure that people aren't bidding up the price of real estate for no good reason. It's to make sure that you don't have asset inflation in the sector. And the second thing is uh, it's you know, more or less for the same token. It is just a different way of sharing these assets in a more or less coherent way. Uh, and if you, in this, in a massive recession or depression, if you just infuse everyone with extra currency, that in the Gasellian sense would depreciate just because you're trying to keep the blood flowing, uh, you would still say like, are people bidding up? land if they are increase the rates to make sure that it isn't kind of spiraling out of control if they aren't you know cut the rates so it's kind of just a different like uh functional way to say when is it doing its job what isn't it and in that sense if the question is oh we need revenues like no you really don't what you need is to kind of keep the blood flowing the economy through currency and i think that's also a different interesting lens to look at there you go yep that checks out (laughs) Yeah, so that's uh, that's a, a a bit galaxy brain, but I I, I mean I think if, if the solution to everything is like oh yeah you need to completely transform the way you uh, look at the way people gain incomes and how currency is administered, uh, it could be technically correct in some sense, but it may not be too useful uh, <laughs> right here and now. <laughs> yeah, um, one one thing that's been kind of missed in the West uh, is that the uh, the stimulus that you see in china the post post quarantine stimulus has taken the the form mostly of vouchers spending vouchers that's uh, so interesting you, uh, how, how general are they uh i think they're 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 not money right in the sense that you can't keep them indefinitely and I, it's unclear to me if you i don't think you can pay down debt with them okay uh but they take the form of a Almost as a almost as a universal coupon, right? So it's not you have you have ten dollars you have you know a hundred dollars to spend uh, wherever you have a hundred dollars that you can spend, and and I should I should double check this to to be sure on the details, but you have a hundred dollars you can spend at a you know mixed mixed three to one with your regular dollars. Yeah, so I mean, it's more general than like food stamps or something. It's it's, it's more general all, than food stamps. So all, so many goods and services, but but not like financial services or anything. I I don't think so. I don't think so. That's interesting. Yeah, I I mean, and, I think... and they're they're partial, right? So it's you get you get a hundred dollars of credits, but you're going to have to supplement that with a hundred of your own dollars in order to spend them. Interesting. So it's just not 
is is that just trying to is that like a workfare kind of thing to make sure that you're not just completely dependent on this that it's it's just no kind of... it's it's not it's not workfare it's it's that that increases the multiplier on how much spending they can get yeah uh, per dollar distributed but the implication is that you don't want you you want to make sure people are getting dollars from different sources and not just this no it's it's that uh, you know if if I give you if I give you a hundred bucks to spend right you'll spend a hundred bucks right yeah. If I give you a hundred bucks and I say, you can spend this anywhere as long as you're putting, you know, one of your own dollars in for every dollar you spend, you're going to spend two hundred bucks. Sure, but I guess the, the the question, like, I need to, if I'm completely indigent, I need to get that one buck uh, to start with. Right, right, and and the um, part of the answer there is that the the savings rate in China is very high because. Um, Many people are effectively self-insured for a wide variety of crises, huh? And you know, self uh, self-produced safety nets. I mean, as far as as far as vouchers go, I mean, as far as this crisis, I think it would have been interesting if we just scale it up immediately by saying everyone gets uh, EBT cards and you have a certain amount of food bucks on it, and they're usable not only at the grocery store for standard foods food stamps, but in fact, everything, you know, shopping at local restaurants, uh, but they, it charges up, it disappears. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think that the, the problem is we just don't have any kind of uh, infrastructure to have made that happen, but I think it would have been a always, very interesting approach. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can hear Silvio Giselle, uh, agreeing with you now. Yeah. It's, it's just, um, I'm, I'm seen as the, the hammer to everything with, but it'd be really fascinating. So, uh, any, any right. fi- final note to the listeners or are you just going to close out here? Let's close out. Let's close cool. out. Cool. So it's been it's been uh, it's been fun talking. Yeah, always a pleasure. We have been talking to Chris Beiser about his recent article on administrative markets and much 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 more. You can find this episode, a link to the article, and all previous episodes of this program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Kezia Shu, Stanford.